Amen. Thank you so much, Justin. And I apologize, I'm still figuring out the lyrics on this thing. Uh, you can only do a little bit at a time, but uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. But, you know, <clears throat> the sound of a baby crying is one of maybe the most disturbing sounds there is in the human brain. In fact, the military has used the sounds of a baby uh, crying babies to even use as a torture of people. The, the noise calls, I think, to the deepest parts of our minds or our hearts, and it says that there is something inherently wrong. And when people hear the crying child, their first response is to try and make the noise stop. So we use things like bottles, pacifiers, rocking, anything to somehow alleviate the sound that somehow drills a hole into our head. In fact, some of the hardest sleepers became light sleepers when they became new parents. But the cries of a baby um, are kind of an awful sound, except that um, I read this blog that was written a few years ago, and this guy by the name of Travis Norwood, he he told this story where he changed his thought over a baby's crying. Sometimes tears are a good thing. Sometimes tears invite us to experience something else. And so I, I thought this was worth sharing today. And he says, in 2006, my wife and I were in Kazakhstan adopting our son. Now, this was their fourth child. This wasn't their introduction to parenting. They had been through this before. And in Kazakhstan, they have these traditional orphanages. And there's picture all of the sort of images you've seen in movies about orphanages, except much, much poorer. And this was one of the old Soviet compounds surrounded by crumbling stone walls. And for a few weeks before the adoption, they would visit their 16-month-old son every day at the orphanage for about an hour and a half. And most days, they would bring him out to them. And they would arrive, and a worker would take a diaper from us, bring him back um, in the diaper, whatever random outfit that they could find. And most days, he wore things like pink tights, be decorated with flowers, because the means were so minimal. And he said that the workers sincerely cared for the children. They were simply overwhelmed. The ratio of these orphan babies to workers was about one to 30, maybe even more. And on one particular day, no worker was available to retrieve them. And so they decided to kind of walk back and look to see where he spent most of his time. And so they cautiously sort of stepped into this room that was just a sea of cribs, about 20 cribs, each with a child anywhere from maybe a few months to a year or so old. And his wife and him stood there staring out over this room, feeling that something was wrong because the room was perfectly peaceful. Over 20 cribs filled with 20 babies, and, and everyone was calm and silent, just still. They looked to see if all the babies were sleeping, and only a couple or a few were. Some sat up in their cribs, many just laid on their back. And they had known from visiting their son that he was always hungry. They just didn't have enough food to feed him properly. And their son was 16 months old and weighed only about 15 pounds. 
a room of 20 hungry children should be an just a, a concert of crying, right? But even if they weren't hungry, some should be needing changing. Some should want attention or just want to be held. But these children had all cried once. It's instinctual. A child cries to tell us adults that they in fact have needs. Makes sense. You don't have words, you got tears. But if a, if a child cries over and over again, and these needs are simply not being met, if no one comes, then the point of crying soon becomes pointless. And there was an entire room of children who had simply emotionally shut down. At that moment, it's, it's that they'd asked me, he says, if they had asked me to adopt all of these children, I would have taken them. Crying then became or becomes the sound of life. And it's the child reaching out saying, I believe that someone will meet my needs. Someone will come. Someone loves me. So crying is actually a beautiful sound. The first time he said that we heard our son cry, we knew something had changed in him. He realized that they would, he could, they would respond as parents to his cries. And the next time that maybe you and I were in a sound earshot of a child's cries, maybe that shouldn't be heard, like in a church or a theater or a restaurant, remember this. Crying is the purest call for love. Don't hate the interrupting noise. Rejoice in knowing that their cry will be answered. I would ask you this. Who are the ones that are crying today? Who is crying out today? See, when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt... They were in slavery for 400 years, the Bible said, but God heard the cries of the oppressed. And what's interesting, if we were to just look at it today, that 1619 marked approximately the first arrival of black slaves to the Commonwealth of Virginia in our country. That's about 400 years. And maybe, just maybe, History can repeat itself by being far less full of fear and prejudice, more opportunity and equality. And so I'm wondering if we, as people who have had it well, had things afforded to us, might reconsider our position. Can those of us who might be white, educated, those of us who have health care, those of us who don't fear police brutality, those of us with influence and hiring power in our places of employment, and most importantly, Jesus in our hearts, be part of God's deliverance today. See, what we know from history is that God hears the cries of the vulnerable among us, and God's timing isn't always immediate, or even, if I'm honest, to my liking. But it's important to ask, 
who are the ones that haven't been allowed to participate fully in society. As we've already discussed, Jesus crosses social divides, ethnic, religious, poor, foreigners, even the untouchables full of disease. And he announces the good news, suggesting that we're all equal and we're all in need of grace. So if you've received grace, you should give it. Grace is everything from education to your health. I don't actually deserve any of it, but I'm afforded it. And I try and steward it well. But it's access to clean drinking water, which I assume is my American right to being afforded simply the benefit of the doubt. So if we have received opportunity, it makes sense that we should also be people of hope who might create equal opportunity and even go out of our way to do so. But here's where it starts. You and I hearing the cries. In our time of upheaval, we are in need of good news. And the good news is that God is present and God is seeing things and God can restore things. The good news of the gospel is that God wants to interrupt our lives with the potential for new life as we're willing to reorient our new life in Christ. And over the past several weeks, we've been mining these stories in the New Testament of where the gospel interrupts people's lives with these sort of before and after experiences. And it left them permanently marked with a change on a heart level. In other words, transformation began on the inside. And so I would hope that you would start to be able to think about a before and after, be able to articulate and identify the difference that Christ is making in you. And so it's really important for those of us who have accepted this good news, received the gospel as a way of life, and to think, okay, how is God shaping or reshaping me? Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, we see someone who Jesus responds to the cries. He was, a, he was someone who was living in quarantine, except no one else was living in quarantine because he had a very serious skin disease that kept him from being a part of society. It didn't matter how educated it was. It didn't matter if he was a Jew or a Gentile. It didn't matter what class he came from or how much net worth his family had. If he or she had leprosy, a, a severe type of skin disease, they were living outside of interpersonal relationship. They were not going to be welcomed in. And so in Mark chapter one, there's five verses that I want us to understand because the gospel creates an interruption. And here, this guy's life gets interrupted, but he goes looking for it. Now, in, in verse 40, through 45, it says this, a man with leprosy came to him and he begged him on his knees. This is not if you have time or if it's convenient. It's an actual seeking, a longing, a begging for. If you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Now, here's where it gets a little unique. My version, the NIV version, says here, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man and he said, I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. The reason I say it's interesting is you might have a different translation that says Jesus was indignant or Jesus was angry which I found fascinating as I read several passages with different interpretations of this word. So again, we're gonna come back to that, but that's really unique. Now, verse 43 says, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. So now you see the, the sort of intensity or maybe even the anger of Jesus. And he said, see that you don't tell anyone what I've done, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them, them being the chief priests, them being the religious leaders, them being the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, what we see here early on is Jesus is trying to court the religious leadership by revealing who and that the Messiah had actually come and that Jesus was doing only things that the Messiah could do. Instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Have you ever wanted or needed something so bad that you begged on your knees? Have you ever been in need so much that you had to beg for medical help? Likely, no. You were desperate, but you never had to beg. In fact, I thought about it. The only time I've ever been on my knees asking for anything was when I proposed to Laurel. And honestly, I knew her response. I was like four and a half years into dating. I think I was way overdue and it was like about time. So even though I got on my knee and I asked, it was not begging or pleading. I knew she'd say yes. Now, when I'm studying this passage, it occurred to me, I've never had to beg. I've wanted things really bad, but I've never needed something that my survival depended on it. Emotionally, relationally, physically, financially. I've pleaded with God desperately for healing, maybe for me or someone else. I've interceded for God on behalf of lost souls who have yet to cross the threshold of faith and say, I do to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've begged God for direction, for wisdom, for his grace. But honestly, it's not the same. I still had family. I still had friends. I still had means. I still had my sort of educated first world common sense. And Jesus here heals a leper. And it says that he was moved with some version of anger and compassion. Now, it seems odd that Jesus would be angry in any way in this moment with someone's request to be healed. It wasn't impatience, though. I tend to think that Jesus was 
angry was in fact because he was remembering that this was never supposed to be a part of the human condition. That this man was asking for something because this world was never actually what God intended. You know where else we see this same angry reaction? Is when Jesus showed up to his dear friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus had already died. It says that he wept, but those were tears feeling anger because again, this was not the world that God intended. So anger is never a bad thing when it leads us towards compassion. Sometimes we feel like I'm not supposed to be angry. And what I would suggest to you is if God has given us the feeling, the ability or the capacity to be angry, then certainly it makes sense. It implies that there's a healthy response to what we do with our anger. So we become people of compassion or justice or mercy because that's who Christ is. Now, as you've observed over the last couple of weeks, these protests, these riots, and the question is, has it made you angry? Likely, it has. There's been some emotional response you have, and I'm just going to put it under an umbrella of anger and outrage. The more important question is, has your anger at what you observe led you to feel contempt, dislike, judgment for quote-unquote those people, or has it led you to a place of maybe greater compassion for the vulnerable, for the marginalized, or even oppressed people of color. See, when you hear the cries, how do you respond? Jesus, through God, has always heard and responded to the cries of the oppressed. Over the last few weeks, I've been doing a lot of thinking and praying and listening and reading and watching. And um, I grew up the son of an immigrant, you know that. I grew up in a melting pot. I grew up where I didn't always feel like I was the prevailing class. In fact, I grew up being intimidated by black people, by brown people. Um, it's just the nature of people being insecure, but it's also the nature of judgment just because of the color of my skin. So I've been consulting with people. I've been reaching out to friends of color and just asking them for the, for the permission to think out loud with them. But a couple of the things that I wanna encourage you to do as well. I've watched a couple of films and one is called Just Mercy. Uh, it's Brian Stevenson's story uh, <clears throat> where he started the Equal Justice Initiative in the Deep South. And um, because I lived in Alabama, it had true resonance with me. Um, I would really encourage you, put the kids to bed this week, but just find time to watch Just Mercy. And then the other one that will not be enjoyable, but I highly recommend is um, the, the uh, a documentary made in support of the Black Lives Matter movement that's called 13. It's based on the 13th Amendment, where we're all been given freedom 
we've all been delivered from this idea of slavery, except there's a clause within it, except for um, those criminals. And so what you see is a product of not just slavery breaking up homes, taking away fathers and mothers, but then after the, the sort of Emancipation Proclamation, seeing this rise, dramatic rise in massacre incarceration that created the, the, the dissolving of many, many um, black families. It will not be entertaining, but it's important for you as a person of faith to consider, to consider um, our response in this. So, when Jesus responded to the begging cries of a leper, and I think that's simply what we've been seeing, people crying out, not just because of George Floyd, but it's cumulative. Because as I sought counsel from my friend of color who has a PhD and is, and is a seminary president, he says, you know, I could tell you my own story where I was arrested and in jail for six hours and we had done nothing wrong. But every person of color saw that video and said, I can relate. That was my story of injustice, even though it didn't take my life. But when Jesus hears these cries, he's moved to being part of the healing. And, but healing for him wasn't just this repulsive skin disease. It also meant, and this is really important for us as a church, that he would no longer be separated from community. See, even the shyest, most introverted among us have realized that we all need intentional, supportive relationships that involve give and take. I mean, if quarantine has taught us anything, it's that we need each other on both a giving and a receiving level. But no one should ever struggle in isolation. The sick are the ones in need of a doctor, but healing and restoration always happens best within community. Now, this is part of what the gospel does. It brings people together, specifically outsiders, into community. And even if it starts with anger or outrage, it uses compassion to draw people in towards fellowship and, 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 and real relationship not just familiarity. Simply being familiar or, or, or seeing people isn't community. Having a history with someone that you don't get to see regularly isn't the same as being in community, but it's being invested in the health and the welfare of others. This, I believe, is what it means to be a church. And community always means not only we find our people, we find the people that we just naturally connect with, it always and has to mean we find our contribution. So if you haven't found your contribution within the community of Mission Hills, you likely haven't found the church to be a transformational community in which God intended. There is always give and take. There is always receiving and sacrifice. There is always effort involved with being in community, and it doesn't always feel like a goosebump. And now Jesus does something interesting. He sends them away with this stern warning, don't tell anyone, but go to the leaders. See, in the early part, this is Mark chapter 1. In the early part of Jesus' ministry, 
Jesus didn't publicize the fact that he was in fact the Messiah. In sending these, this guy to the leaders, it would have revealed who the Messiah was. He was trying to court leadership first before he drew in followers. But the people would have expected a Messiah to liberate them from Rome. And if he had publicly been identified as the Messiah, the people would have tried to make him king there and then. And that was not his mission. His mission was to demonstrate the way of salvation. His mission wasn't just to heal, to help, to feed. His mission was to raise up disciples whose lives would reflect his own demonstration. I also like to think that the instruction was to not tell people was also about one's motivation to follow. See, in an oppressed society that Jesus lived in, people were in need of health care. They were in need of welfare. They were in need of charity. They were in need of meals. But Jesus didn't simply want to attract a crowd. He wanted to raise up disciples. He wanted to demonstrate that the power of the gospel is how he lived for the sake of others. The gospel has to change something on an internal level in our hearts, the way we care for the least of these. And he sought followers who were committed to give their lives away too. See, when we come to faith in Christ, what we're saying is, I surrender all. What we're saying is, I give up my rights. What we're saying is, not my will, but yours be done. Not my comfort, convenience, privilege, but your will be done for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus modeled. That's what Jesus said, come follow me. So I want to transition into a time of reflection and examination. I know this is a, a, a heavy word, but I want you to feel like you have the tools in your emotional, spiritual, and mental toolbox to be able to apply to being a part of the solution in our world and country that is full of fear and unrest right now. So that's been my prayer. That's why I felt like this was such an unmissable word and an unmissable time together, is because there is this word that God keeps bringing up as I study these gospel encounters, what Jesus has been trying to communicate. And for those of us who've grown up with the gospel and in church for most of our lives, we need a new lens. We need a new lens. And so the first disciples, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which in the New Testament refers to a shared meal. Not just an event where everything gets distributed, but a emptying out of our pantries because people have filled our lives and our homes and are seated around our tables. And they call this the Lord's Supper. Think of what this would have been like for them. Think about that early church under Roman oppression. And because you're a Jew, and because you're a follower of the way of Jesus, you have no privilege. In fact, you're likely working land as a day laborer that you used to even own. You have no privilege left. 
And so you're one of the early followers of Jesus who have said, I do, and you knew the cost. Think about gathering for this Lord's Supper. Think of what it would have been like for them. His sacrificial death on the cross and the subsequent resurrection were real for them. They were first-generation Christians. They were misunderstood and opposed by the people around them, and some of them were even beaten or even put to death for following Christ. That has never been required of my commitment to Christ. But imagine the people in your faith community. Imagine the people that have sat around your living room or in your tribe or in your, on your table. Imagine what it would have meant for them when they gathered with a few people who shared their mission and their beliefs. Imagine sitting around the table and sharing a meal with them of those who you loved and whose lives had changed in the same ways that yours have. And as you gather, you can't help remember that those who used to sit at the table now were killed for proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection. They were no longer among your number. Some of you gather with injuries and scars because of the persecution. Oh yeah, this week I got beat up for sharing with a friend the difference Christ had made in me or the promise of new life. Imagine sitting around that Lord's Supper. You break bread and you eat it and you're remembering that Jesus had broken his body so that you could find life in him. Imagine drinking the wine with these fellow believers as you recall his blood. You saw his blood and how it was shed. He did this so that you could be cleansed and forgiven of sins. See, God designed communion to be an intimate act of remembering his flesh and his blood. But it's not just about intimacy with Jesus. It's also about intimacy with one another. Remember that Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, the role of a servant, and commanded them to love one another just as he loved them. As we consider the cross, I want us to just examine our own hearts, and I want you to look around the gallery view. I want you to look around your neighborhood. I want you to think of those in your tribe. We should be asking ourselves, am I willing to love, to serve, to support people in my church and in my tribe to that extent? This is what it meant to be a part of a transformational community of faith. Would you just bow your head in a word of prayer as I lead you through this communion elements and as we just examine our own hearts? Our Father, I pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would open our minds, soften our hearts where it needs to be softened, convict our hearts where it needs to be convicted, but reveal to us the areas yet surrendered. We want to own this faith without possessing it, like we have somehow created it. But we understand that we have been recipients of your grace and of your mercy, and in that we are all privileged. Bring to our minds 
the unsurrendered places. Bring to mind the unreconciled relationships. Bring to our minds the opportunities that you're placing in front of us. I pray that we would have a sensitive heart to be able to turn, turn from, turn toward, but respond as your son did. And on the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took this bread and when he had given thanks to it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he says, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you have some version of bread that represents the body, let's take and eat together. And like a good extended meal, they sat around. And it says that after supper, he took the cup, the cup of wine, and he gave thanks and he gave it to them. And he says, drink this, all of you, not some of you, but all of you. This is my blood, the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes I think we need to recondition ourselves to know that how much we need forgiveness, that that should be a part of our regular spiritual diet. Our, our spiritual conversation is our own forgiveness and let it soften our hearts. And he said, whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith saying Christ has died, Christ is risen, but Christ will in fact Come again. Let's drink together. <clears throat>